0: i do the do's yeah so just to let you know that i might might add a bit of reverb and some sinister synth drone oh yeah do all that yeah. yeah yeah i'll do that yeah okay right the earth let her be governed by her parts and let there be division in her that the glory of her may be always drunken and vexed in itself her course let it run with the heavens and as a handmaid let her serve them. One season let it confound another, and let there be no creature upon or within her the same. All her members let them differ in their qualities, and let there be no one creature equal with another. The reasonable creatures of the earth let them vex and weed out one another, and the dwelling places let them forget their names, the work of man and his pomp let them be defaced his buildings let them become caves for the beasts of the field confound her understanding with darkness how was that? alright yeah was that Judy Dench enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> uh. as close as it's going to get so, the 19th Enochian Call. How many times have we recited that?
1: <laughs> Never in the English.
0: No, true.
1: Mm. So as we're recording this podcast, Dunk, this episode, mm. this description of the earth given in this call, of the 30 ethers, seems very obvious. Yeah. It is, on
0: the one hand, a very traumatic picture of the nature of the world and the nature of reality but at the same time it has a really strange poetic beauty to it
1: <laughs> yeah a lot of occult authors have talked about this translation mm. from the Enochian which is uh an invocation of the ethers or the airs mm. isn't it that were That were delivered by angels to Doctor John Dee and Edward Kelly back Mm -hmm. in the 16th century, and it's often remarked how this description of the world is too cruel. You know, too. um, It seems to be giving a fundamental description of the world that is. Fundamentally at odds with the idea of Creation being a good thing Yeah So much so that some some people have rejected This presentation of the world And you know often that goes hand in hand With that suspicion that perhaps these angels That uh, Dee and Kelly had conversation with Were in fact demons mm. Because it's a difficult scenario to consider, isn't it? That that might be the nature of the world.
2: Yeah.
0: But I think the the fundamental principle here is that line, let the earth be governed by her parts. Because on the one hand that is a recipe for chaos and conflict. You know, if, if any part of the world can do what it wants then it can come into conflict with another part. But at the same time, you might say that this is what gives us agency, individuality. If a thing can be governed by its parts, you know, maybe there's something miraculous there. And it does lead to something that's grim, but, you know, it also leads to things that we value as well. If something can be governed by its parts, then on a kind of mundane level, there's a potential for things like democracy, for instance, which is the government of the whole by its parts. So it's a it's a mixed thing. Well, it seems to be describing democracy. Mm. Imagine, Alan, Im- imagine. Imagine if we lived in a world... You know, difficult that it is to imagine and horrible. Imagine mm. if we lived in a world where anybody could do anything to anyone. Imagine if if evil people could do evil things to you. Can you conceive of such a world? <laughs> is that
1: sarcasm, Dunk? <laughs> this is what it's depicting, isn't it? Well, I think what it's depicting is... You, you bring up a, a good point. You said if the Earth is governed by its parts, then it allows certain things mm. that wouldn't be possible otherwise. But I think it's saying something quite profound there, which mm-hmm. is that perhaps these things that we favour, these things that we consider to be good things, are themselves merely an expression of the same drunkenness mm-hmm. and delusion, we might say. right, Confound her understanding with darkness. right? Yeah. It's all part of the same tapestry. Where will it lead, these reasonable creatures being... Vexed and weeding each other out, right? it leads to that our dwelling place is being forgotten. Everything comes to an end. Everything will be defaced. our buildings will become caves for the beasts of the field. Yeah, despite all of the things that we champion, yeah, it's all going to lead in that direction. Yeah, mm. you see that a lot. Um,
0: it seems to have become especially noticeable recently, people dismissing the past. You know, because it doesn't live up to the ethical standards of today. I mean, that's mm. that's doing that, isn't it? That's um, defiling the
1: <laughs> the dwelling places and the yep. the names of the places. Yeah, and arguably, you can say that's a function of the late stage of a civilization or a culture is that it does that to itself. Mm. You don't need any external force for that to happen. Yeah. It happens on repeat, over and over. The same thing that leads to the rise of it. Is the same thing that leads to its fall And it does it to itself Because that's the nature of the world that we're in Yeah, And when that's occurring All of the cultural beliefs And preferences The bubble that you live in right? All, all, that pops And everything uh, The veils begin to lift And the truth of the nature of the world Presents itself, doesn't it? Mm. And it's this truth described in this In this invocation or this prayer It is The The parts can govern the whole. And that's a strangely
0: miraculous thing. I mean, maybe worth considering the alternative. (laughs) Say if if the whole couldn't be governed by the parts, you know, I think then we would have a a, a kind of reality, you know, very different from ours, but a sort of
1: angelic reality, maybe, where everything just runs on rails. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, it seems to be (laughs) describing the possibility of two different worlds then. Mm. if the parts govern the whole then that's uh, an injustice isn't it that a, that a part should speak on behalf of the whole mm. you're going to have division there's, there's no two ways about that uh, but a world that's the opposite to that where the whole governs the parts then everything is in its right place isn't it yeah but then that's a world without
0: individuality without free will agency as such
1: maybe it would certainly be a world of peace Yeah. wouldn't it and and the opposite of things being forgotten, things being in darkness, uh, things are falling apart. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's spelling out two worlds.
0: It is, but I think that that mm. other world is is probably one that's quite repulsive
1: to to most people. If we if we're talking about two worlds, are we talking? Are we just imagining different ways of organising ourselves socially speaking? No. Right, that's, <laughs> that's not, not what, what we're what talking about. No, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> One place everything is upside down, on the wrong way around and there's division and chaos and strife and death and destruction and confusion. Bumping, wandering around, bumping into things. I mean, this is a very old description of the human species. Mm. You know, given in uh, um, poems by Empedocles, Parmenides, uh, Crowley's visions. Humans are described in various different ways. As being a blind, deaf, like they're drunk, sometimes described as having like a, a a blanket or a cover over their heads, wailing that they're in such a situation, mm. such a condition, bumping into each other, you know, at the mercy of the strongest impression of the moment, their instincts, their desires, unable to think, unable to understand, whilst at the same time prattling on about how sophisticated their thinking is. How enlightened and reasonable their society is But this is a very old description And always a very challenging one Because no one wants to hear that, do they? No But we are in, in a moment, aren't we? We are in a moment where I think it would be unreasonable To deny that this is the nature of the world Yeah I mean, at the moment, the cultural beliefs that held our society together Our civilization, arguably a global one They're falling away, aren't they? Yeah the the world order that came into being at the end of the Second World War, the way that we would orient ourselves in terms of understanding what good and evil is and how we relate to one another, that's disappeared. The
0: reasonable creatures of the earth let them vex and weed out one another. I mean, the reasonable creatures is human beings, isn't it? It's like... Yes,
1: yeah. They just can't leave each other alone. <laughs> yes. Mm. The heroes that we used to hold up have now become the villains and we've... Getting rid of them. Mm. There's a fundamental rearrangement occurring on the surface of the earth. Yeah. But as, as that's happening, we get to see the earth as it really is. Which is that this this process never, never ends, never finishes. And it was always the case underneath everything. Yeah. This is the way that the world is. You know, it's at moments like this in this podcast, Duncan, that I wonder about the virtue of naming things. Mm. Right, because much is made... In uh, the magical tradition of naming things And it's important to name things that are hidden So that you can see what their real nature is You know, a lot can hinge upon that mm-hmm. Whether whether you still buy into what it is that used to Engender a particular kind of behaviour mm-hmm. Right, if you spell out certain things that used to motivate you Or certain beliefs that you used to have right, And you see their real nature and what it is that they really do uh, And then giving those a name um, you can recover a power that you gave away, perhaps in the past, sometimes in the future. So naming things. And, of course, the, the, the standard magical example is the naming of a demon, isn't it? That yeah. By having the name of an entity or a demon, you can have power over it. You can summon it and control it, which is why they want to keep their names hidden. Mm. But there's also uh, something else that goes hand in hand with that, and I think that's the the refusal to name things. Yes. So when it comes to this podcast... Right. Of course there are extraordinary cultural dramas playing out. Every time we do an episode, mm. there's a new thing occurring. And with each wave of this deluge of ignorance and delusion, <laughs> unwise action, right, with each wave, um it gets more and more intense, more and more disorienting, more and more frantic and hysterical. And if we want to talk about what's really happening, or we want to talk about The nature of things and and Mm -hmm. how we Navigate what it is that's happening In Mm -hmm. our experience it can be very Difficult to Talk about what it is that's happening Because people get immediately Sucked into the drama Mm. Right so it's it can be difficult Say to talk about The reality of As an example the practical Efficacy of many people Who claim to be witches or magicians Executing magical campaigns to address what they think is an evil in the world. So I'm yeah. thinking of the example with Putin, right? They yeah, wanted yeah. to get rid of Putin and then perhaps this would change the nature of the war in the Ukraine, right? But but only a month ago to even say those names, immediately people are in a drama, a cultural drama. And it's almost like anything that we say will no, long, no longer be heard. I mentioned it in a previous episode where I said Putin is actually a moderate relative to the rest of the people in his government and that mm. if he disappears someone worse might step in it might make things worse mm. so the point there wasn't about Russia and Ukraine or being pro-Putin or anti-Putin or anything like that but I saw soon as soon as we mentioned that immediately someone said they turned off the episode as soon as they heard me say that mm. because yeah, why? because they're in a cultural drama Yeah. So so there can be virtue in actually not describing what it is that's happening to try and sail through it to get to the point that we want to make. So there's, there's this question around not naming what everyone already knows is named within a drama. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, yeah. that we, so that we can describe something else. Just have a chance to be able to describe something else. Yeah,
0: otherwise we fall into the vexing and the weeding,
1: don't yes. we? Yes, <laughs> yeah,
0: yes. As soon as we name it.
1: Yes, and if there's one point to this podcast, it's to try and talk about something else. Mm. Just one little corner of the internet, one little corner of the um, podcasting world, yeah. of a culture, where we can just talk about something else, to try and talk about something else. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm always sensitive to that issue. On the other hand, however, if we don't use the example, it can be less edifying than if we did. Mm. So the question is. I could talk about the details of what I think has dominated our culture you know, since say 1948 until now, and how that's ended Mm -hmm. and where we find ourselves now at a a moment where a new reorienting principle for our culture will arise of the next 5 to 10 years to take the place of that which which has disappeared but is there any virtue in doing that with the particulars? Yeah. What do you think, Dunk? It's all just going to be more vexing and weeding, isn't it?
0: I mean, even that new order that's arising you know, it's going to be more of the same from the perspective that we're talking about something I wanted to bring in here and um, it's something I explored in an episode of one of my solo podcasts but what we're looking at in the 19th Enochian Call is a description of reality, the world as it is it's a description Mm. of Malkuth on the tree of life
1: and um, Wow, almost like the 10th episode of our podcast maps onto the tree of life. What a strange coincidence.
0: (laughs) But I remember reading, I think it was probably in Dion Fortune, her book on Kabbalah, how each of the Sephiroth has a virtue corresponding to it. Hmm. And the virtue of Malkuth is discrimination. Hmm. And it's interesting, isn't it, how... That's a word now, you know, if you look it up in a dictionary, the first definition you'll see of that word is generally a negative one. Yes. But it's supposedly the virtue of Malkuth. You know, the parts govern the whole, uh, there's nothing equal, there's division between everything. What that gives us the opportunity to do is to be able to discriminate between one thing and another. Discriminate in the sense of develop... A finer more refined understanding of things now i think what i'm heading towards is is there something here do you think alan about action so you're talking about intentionally not naming things you know and of course naming and speech are forms of action you know as soon as we take action then we fall into the vexing and the weeding and I'm thinking with discrimination as well, you know, it's it's a really good thing to discriminate between things. I mean, you know, fundamentally good and bad, you need to be able to discriminate between good and bad. But as soon as you start to act upon that, maybe, you know, then things get problematic. It's almost like there's a kind of um, withdrawal or reserve being called for, you know, in exercising that virtue of discrimination. We're doing it now. Is it only... When we move into action, you know, maybe away from that other world (laughs) into acting in this
1: world, that things become problematic. I would say that the description given in this call, right, right, is saying something worse than that. Right. Any attempt at escaping this condition or this state of the world Mm. is a delusion doesn't matter what you do. And that maybe is why the virtue of it, then, is to discriminate. Well, it's like we're called to participate in it, aren't we?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether we wish to or not. It's a call to participate in it, mm. whether we wish to or not. So the option isn't to somehow behave in this world where we will change it on its own terms. You know, like yeah. if, if we yeah. just pick the right part that governs the whole, <laughs> or then we'll be winning then then we will fundamentally change the nature of existence itself yeah. yeah i think what this call is saying is that at the bottom of everything this world is pitch black in the sense that um it's confusion it's division and it's supposed to be like that yeah and any hope based on temporal things right is fundamentally misguided yeah and deep deep down don't we know this you know, we
0: know it, we know it deep down, we see it every day, we know the way the world is, we know the way it works. Somebody could do something awful to us, and then Mm. where are you? Where are you left? You know, you might get justice. Can you punish somebody? You can't even punish somebody for something. I mean, you can do something horrible to them, but will they see that as a punishment? Will they, you know, change their ways? Will they make amends? Not necessarily. Bad things can happen, and you can't do anything about
1: it. And we know that this is the way that things are. I think humans fundamentally have you know, the capacity to discriminate then between leaning into the nature of this world and the possibility of something else. Hmm. right? So you're, you're saying that people know deep down that the world is really like this. However, if one leans into the division and the misunderstanding, believing that that's the way through, Believing that, that actually if we do pick the right part to govern Then the world will be the way that we want it to be
3: mm.
1: I think that that option eventually evaporates So there's something I've noticed recently Which I've found quite disturbing Over the last few years there have been successive waves Of delusion, self-righteousness Fear, scapegoating, shame like a deluge And it comes in waves And those people that are susceptible to being swept Along by those waves Which will eventually lead to their drowning They become more prone To successive waves after But not only that What they're capable of taking part in We, we would say Becomes greater the, the, Their susceptibility to doing things That they would have thought were immoral Only a year or so ago mm. Becomes greater More likely to go along with it Okay, so I'll I'll give you an example of what I mean. Oh, and I'm going to try and tread the line between trying to describe this structure and giving enough information that you might be able to guess at the actual recent events.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But I'm going to try and do it in such a way that it's obvious I'm not really talking about the politics or the cultural beliefs around the events. So we spoke on a recent episode about my dawning realisation around reputation. (laughs) Do you remember that? Mm. That I hadn't quite understood to what extent reputation plays a role in people's lives, that that that's what they're concerned with, that this is a a key element to this drowning herd behaviour, this deluge that I've talked about, where people live in states of fear uh, and shame uh, around scapegoating and belonging to groups where preservation of the ideology of the group is more important than any of the members mm. in other words you're expected to behave for the good of the ideology that possesses the group and should you step outside of that group then you'll be sacrificed and it might even mean that you sacrifice your own friends and family for the good of that, that herd or that group and that eventually the that herd destroys itself, the people that are drowning in the deluge, you know, eventually they, they do drown and it comes to an end and there are historical examples of this. But a key part of that is, is reputation. Now, in the past, it used to be the case that where you were expected to tow a party line, say, right, part of that was enforced by a regime or a, or a top-down state where if you were seen not to tow the party line, there'd be consequences, perhaps from the secret police, perhaps from some other kind of um, government apparatus, so, if you didn't tow the party line, maybe your kids wouldn't get into the university you want to send them to. Maybe you wouldn't get health care for the elderly members of your family. Mm. Uh, maybe you'd even go to prison. Right? So, there is an external top down pressure for you to behave in a certain way, for you to conform to a certain ideology or the herd behavior. We don't have that now. The, these successive waves that we see are not top down,
3: mm.
1: they are enforced through the willful, concern with reputation perpetuated through reputation concern with reputation mm. it's something that's 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 possessing people that they consciously cultivate yeah yeah with each other as a group and the state isn't the one enforcing it yeah, I right, mean, it's been
0: noted, hasn't it? It's a it's a fundamental feature of neoliberalism. It's a, the control society, rather than the idea, like you were saying before, that punishment would be inflicted from above. You know, it's internalized now. We do this to
1: ourselves, and for the sake of reputation. Yeah. Now, this is the morality of the gutter. Think about that. That you, that people's lives would be destroyed because people are concerned with their reputation, mm. not because there would be real-world consequences for you and your family, but because you're concerned with your reputation. I'll give another example, Dunk. Just recently, there was a massacre that occurred. Mm. In the news is a big story. And there was a social eruption of a, of a political and cultural drama where that loss of life, that the horror of it, didn't touch the people involved. But even if we took the most conservative description... It's still an atrocity that happened. There are people who decided immediately to play out their cultural belief or their political ideology in the West, in universities, students. And it turned out that there was some consequence to saying the things that they'd said or doing the things that they'd done within that cultural drama, presenting the particular side that they were invested in. And then quickly they apologised. The things that they'd said Because mm-hmm. of uh, financial reasons As if These people Couldn't see five minutes in front of their faces To understand Consequence The fact that they immediately flip-flopped On their position Demonstrated That their concern with the reputation And the, and the playing out Of what they profess to believe Isn't principled What I'm getting at is this two things there are large numbers of people for whom atrocities or horror makes no contact with their souls and it's all based on this idea of reputation so there's no principal position being taken it's like if you scratch the surface there's nothing in there and it's not imposed by some outside state apparatus there's just a dark pit a superficial veneer that will conform to whatever is the most expedient form of reputation cultivation. Yeah. Now, that to me is not only uh, disturbing because it kind of points to a very strange uh, nihilism, you know, that's at the heart of everything. Mm. But um, it's what it points to what might be possible in the not too distant future. Mm. A person like that, what are they capable of? Mm. When, when atrocity, horror, the horror makes no contact. Yeah. And just to, just to backtrack mm. on that for a
0: second, to think about what's going on there, you know, when someone's behaving in that way. Mm. I mean, what comes to my mind is, as we've talked about, we know reality is a certain way. It's the way that it's described. In that Enochian call the way reality is how do we live with that what is the response that we can take so maybe to some degree it's understandable why someone is making that sort of response because then there's a sense that there is something something to be won or lost perhaps so when an atrocity occurs if all we care about is our reputation in our response to that. At least, at the very, very least, what somebody's doing there is... is creating a sense that there's something to be gained. I'm not justifying it. But, you know, just trying to understand where... where that comes from. Because
1: otherwise there's just horror, isn't there? There's just horror. To me, it just looks like the loss of humanity. Mm. What yeah. makes a human a human Yeah,
0: well, in this context, what makes a
1: human a human is to feel the horror you see there's there's a scenario where where you as a result of what you've been swept along by what you bought into, you do something that you can't live with and you realize it after you've done it mm. and in that position, you can either do the extraordinarily painful thing of recognizing what you've done. And, re- and living with that and dispensing with what it is that you used to believe. That's a big ask. Yeah, It's the difficult thing to do, even though it's the right thing to do. It's the difficult thing to do, isn't it? The other option is you can't admit to yourself, so you have to double down on what it is that you claimed before in terms of how you understood yourself and the world. Hmm. And that's understandable, isn't it? Yeah. Right? One of them is convenient and easy. You just bury it Pretend it hasn't happened But you have to double down Yeah. One of them's difficult But if you take the convenient route At that point It's only going to get worse And then the difficult move Of making a different choice That grows smaller and smaller It shrinks until eventually The opportunity is gone That's the direction That these successive waves Is, is taking people in And it's not about the content you know, of the current thing, of the current drama, it's not about the content, it's the structure of it. So the content can change just yeah. d- depend and we've seen it this this last wave that's just happened has been disorienting for a lot of people, and it's made strange bedfellows, politically speaking, hasn't it?
3: Mm.
1: And it's only going to get more and more confusing, and that's what I mean by a loss of humanity It's a direction that we're we're moving in. And that loss of humanity, again, isn't because there's some tyrannical government enforcing real-world consequences. It's mostly enabled, isn't it, by the phones that we carry around in our pockets. You've talked on this podcast about reputation
0: before, and the handy slogan that you arrived at in the end, I think, was no reputation survives the great work. I've forgotten I mean, about I feel, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, what what's clear perhaps in what you're saying is that the more that we deny what we know that we've done wrong is the more difficult it becomes to to let go of it and the more and more that the chances of being able to do so diminish.
1: I think that also reflects on the capacity for people who want to talk about something else to speak in that way or to even be heard. Mm. It's like shouting into the void. So, now that we've sufficiently described <laughs> <laughs> the nature of this world and where we find ourselves, how does this call or invocation proceed, Duncan? Well, just before we do that, oh yeah. <laughs>
0: I just wanted to draw another another analogy, you know, perhaps to speak to how profound mm. this this vision of reality is. I mean, and again, coming back to this basic idea of the parts governing the whole, you know, what comes to my mind, because a lot of the thinking that I do tends to be informed by Buddhism, you know, that's almost a definition of dependent co arising, this idea that it's the parts that govern the whole. So, like in Buddhism, this idea that, you know, there isn't isn't any self, isn't any separate permanent thing everything arises from other things from independently arising causes you know, it's it, it really is at that sort of level, I think that this call is describing reality there isn't anything that isn't governed by its parts
1: so, Dunk, given that that's the case what's the way out? Hmm. what should we do? Well... When everything is damned, what are we left with?
0: Let's go back
1: to that Enochian call and
0: put the reverb and the drone on again. (laughs) Where did we get to? Confound her understanding with darkness. That was the last line, yeah. Yeah. For why it repenteth me I made man. One while let her be known... And another while a stranger, because she is the bed of a harlot, and the dwelling place
1: of him that is fallen. So this is a curious account of why the world is the way that it is, Mm. isn't it? For why it repenteth me I made man.
0: Yeah. And I don't think Buddhism's going to be much help to us (laughs) on this part think we're operating in a different frame of reference here god Are you is sure <laughs> god is sorry that he
1: made man i think i can draw parallels let's see right yeah so it repenteth me i made man this has parallels doesn't it in uh, genesis in the bible mm. where, we fi- where we find this phrase and uh, in the description of the creation of the world yeah maybe in the myth of the flood
0: as well you know where god yes everyone gets evil so god decides to wipe
1: us all out and start over yes. again yes yeah yes and now the cliche or the crass superficial view of this is that uh god is uh easily angered he's a bit of a tyrant and if you misbehave he's just going to wipe everyone away mm. so so you should be scared of him and you should uh you know do what he says right but what it actually means in the, you know, the standard theological view, let's put it that way, is that God sees the choices that humans have made in this fallen world and as a fallen creature. And it causes sorrow in the heart of the divine because God or the divine doesn't want this for humans. Yeah. But we're free to choose the course that we take. So, it repenteth me I made man means God is sorry for the choices that his creation has made and what it's done to itself
0: Mm. and that's interesting (laughs) like you were saying earlier most probably just choosing the right part of reality to elevate above others is not going to achieve a different outcome because it's just more of the same it's more vexing and weeding yeah but if god is sorrowful for the choices that humanity takes does suggest that there is some sort of alternative
1: and perhaps we can draw a parallel here with buddhism right because the first move in buddhism is to feel compassion isn't it yeah for human beings all sentient beings suffering as a result of the nature of existence itself so so perhaps there's a parallel there with this idea of compassion yeah perhaps being the divine sorrow of god but compassion of course isn't just a feeling <laughs> it's just not just
0: sort of feeling sorry for people it's a uh, it's a radical letting go of uh, a notion that things should be otherwise.
1: But also a movement in a direction of escaping that suffering. Although not avoiding it. Not avoiding it, mm. but travelling through it to something else. Yeah. So this divine sorrow, implying that there's some other option. Mm. But how do we square that with the idea that this world, in and of itself, like, is inescapably fallen or damned? That the reasonable creatures of the earth will vex and weed out one another. That our dwelling places will forget our names. That any work that we do will be defaced. You know, whichever part we decide is the best part to govern the whole. <laughs> We're just doing more vexing and wheedling. <laughs> yeah, still leads us to our destruction. Yeah. Right. What's the way out?
0: I just wondered if there's something more to be said about the idea of God being sorrowful. I mean, repent often suggests an element of regret, doesn't it? Yeah. Is that what's being expressed here? Does God regret making human beings? I don't think that's what's being implied.
1: No, I think it's just that notion, and there's a long tradition of understanding it in this way in terms of its references within Genesis, Mm. that it's not the regret of us being created, Mm. but in the path that we've decided to, to choose for ourselves. But it also implies something else, which is that perhaps... If humans have made another choice, which this implies is available to them, Mm. that perhaps that redeems God in some way himself.
0: I mean, again, I'm left wondering about... It's not the nature of human beings that God is sorrowful for, but the choices, the actions. Yeah. It's almost like it's our decision to take things in a certain direction...
1: That's where it goes wrong. Another thing we find in the Bible are lots of instances of God giving warnings, descriptions of what will happen if we continue down, humans continue down a certain path, Mm. often in the form of prophecies. And this reminds me of something that happened to me a couple of years ago where I was given a vision. Uh oh. (laughs) Yeah, a very strange vision. One night I woke up, must have been in the early hours of the morning. Mm. And it was like I was grabbed and taken into a different state of mind and shown something. The implication being, pay attention. Yeah,
0: I love that. Uh, taken into a different state of mind. I could, I could see uh, Old Testament language around that. He was taken up by the Lord and <laughs> and taken up into heaven and shown many wonders.
3: <laughs>
1: Yes, but the, de- the defining characteristic to this was that sense of you are being intentionally put in this state to see this. Yeah. Yeah, that was a key defining characteristic of it. Something I've not experienced that often. Mm.
0: You know, in that state, did you get that feeling of, hang on, something's coming? Did it, did it have that
1: quality to it? Uh, it? You see, it was so strange. It wasn't like it, it gradually crept on mm-hmm. or um, usually when you when i have visions of things or or whatever i'm in a certain state of mind already
3: mm.
1: you know and there's and then and then it's uh you know it's to be expected isn't it or even sometimes even in that state when something is coming down the pipeline you can have that sense oh something's coming yeah oh something's coming what was it going to be yeah right? yeah it wasn't like it wasn't like any of that it was like going from being you know completely ordinary to being that that sense of being grabbed wow. and carried mm. like I'm showing you this intentionally that, that, was, that was more important than anything else mm. and then I'm being shown so I didn't really have much of a chance to feel like something's coming <laughs> it, 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 was, it was oh I've, I've been grabbed to be shown something <laughs> and now I'm being shown it so there wasn't much <laughs> wasn't much time to reflect on it I was shown an American city and the sun was setting and the city was kind of quiet so it was like evening the evening uh-huh. right and the day was winding down something like that And then I was aware of a woman in the street next to a car, and uh, in the distance, the sky, which had previously looked like one block of colour, right the dark blue of an evening, as Mm -hmm. the sun's setting, suddenly I could see that actually it was divided in two, and there was a slightly darker band of cloud on the horizon. And as soon as I'd recognised it, instantly it had engulfed the city. And the woman was screaming... And there was what looked like fallout in the air. Something like volcanic ash, nuclear fallout, dust or debris from the collapsing of a building. It's hard for me to say. But Mm. let's say it was something like ash Mm. covering everything. Mm. And at that moment, I was allowed a small taste of the emotional states involved. And it was traumatic. Now, I say allowed a small taste. This has happened to me before, where I've been allowed... To understand or feel What's associated with particular events Enough that I can understand the depth of it But restrained enough If I felt the full weight of it I'd be traumatised
0: Yeah, so some sort of filtering going
1: on Yeah Yeah. And then the vision ended Now I was left puzzled as to why I was shown that What's the point of it This wasn't a dream, it wasn't vague I mean it's defining characteristic was Was being taken and shown something Yeah Uh, You could say that it's a horrible message. It's a horrible thing to be shown. So what would be the nature of something that would show you that? Again, it's like the questions around the origin of the Enochian Magical System or even this prayer or invocation or this call Mm -hmm. that we're discussing. But as is the rule that I always repeat when it comes to magic, you can simply allow something to disclose its own nature and then you'll see what it is. Mm -hmm. You just have to give it space. Now, that same week after having that vision... I was on a video call because I was doing an online retreat. So I described what I'd seen. Because one way of thinking about magic is that your duty is to allow something to speak without changing the message. You can convey the message. Yeah. Right. And and your one job is to not ruin it, distort (sighs) it, destroy it, change it to something else, mold it to your preferences, that kind of a thing. So I relayed the vision. Because why else would I be shown it if I'm not supposed to speak about it? What would be the point? So this is like two years ago. At the time, I was unsure whether it was showing me a particular event. Was it showing me symbolically something else? So one way of understanding the vision is that it's showing the sun setting on the American way of life and that the collapse of America will be something that's sudden and traumatic. I'm doing my best there not to step outside of the vision and add things that aren't there. The next day, in the news, there was a volcanic eruption in Hawaii and they had to evacuate the city. So there we have ash, we have an American city, we have an evacuation. And some people who'd been on the call thought that vision had been a prophecy of an event that actually happened. Mm. Now, I didn't see a volcano in the vision. No. right. But I could have just taken that, couldn't I, as the the event that must have been prophesied. It's as good as any other, isn't it? What's the chances that that would happen on the day when I share the vision? And you could even say that that falls in line with this understanding of a demonstration that the nature of magic is that it demonstrates that the actual uh layout of creation but I wonder if uh, there, there is
0: something here about those sorts of experiences and the forms that they can take sometimes i mean like you said you didn't see a volcano in the vision so you can't say that that's what that vision foreshadowed you know it's just not there is it But I think sometimes there can be qualities to a vision that have a sort of confirmation to them. I'm trying to think what I'm trying to put into words here. You know, know, sometimes you can have those really trivial uh, precognitive experiences. You know, when you have a dream and you wake up and then you turn on the radio and and there's something, yeah. What's important, I think, in those sorts of experiences is not the details of the correspondence between the vision and what happens in the outside world, but the fact that it's just creating that sense of pointing to a greater reality. Sometimes you get something similar in synchronicities. You might have a synchronicity where you meet, you know, I don't know, some old flame from junior school or something like that, and you meet this person and there's all these incredible events around it that couldn't possibly happen, but it has happened. And then there's the danger of thinking that means, right, I'm supposed to be with this person. (laughs) Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's taking the uh, synchronicity to be a message. Yeah, yeah. Like the content is an instruction.
0: Yeah. So I think think with visionary experiences, there can sometimes be a little bit of fallout. (laughs) See what I did there? Just in the nature of the experience itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, but there is an aspect, isn't there? You'd say this is the defining characteristic of a synchronicity, is that you know it when you see it. Yeah. It's astonishing because it is it. It has the same meaning. Even if the terms or the symbols, their relationships line up, but they're not the same, obviously. So yeah, yeah. synchronicity is always to do with symbols lining up, isn't it? Yeah. And they're never one-to-one. Yeah. you know. So if you had a vision of an old flame, and, and then in the vision, it was literally a flame. <laughs> you wouldn't expect a flame to see a flame the next day, but you see the person who is the old flame. <laughs> yeah right, the relationship's the same isn't it and the the uh, the undeniable characteristic is that you're seeing the same thing, yeah, that's now, why they're always astonishing
0: now, in the experience you're describing, the fact that there was a volcanic mm. eruption the next day almost kind of detracts from it, doesn't it, in a strange way
1: yeah, well, you could say you know it when you see it then mm, and I didn't think that was it no, I just didn't think that was it, so it left me in this position where and it, and it's and it applies to synchronicity as well, doesn't it It's like what What is the point of seeing it? What's the point of talking about it? Well, imagine if it was a vision for this volcanic eruption. Was I supposed to phone Hawaii, (laughs) the main island in Hawaii, and say, hey, the volcano's going to erupt, you should evacuate? That's obviously not the point, is it? No. No one's going to believe you, and why why should they? So it's not like it's a warning in the sense of uh, you needing to do something, like a message. So again, like the synchronicity. It's not a message, is it? It's not an instruction. And that thing of knowing it when you see it implies, doesn't it, that it's like you can't guess what it is until it happens. Mm. You don't understand prophecy until it's happened. So it's not like a message with an instruction to do something. It doesn't have that nature to it. And you have to let it disclose its own nature. Yeah. But just like synchronicities, a prophecy, when it does happen, points you in a certain direction, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a demonstration of something. But a demonstration of what? Because this vision is a... a it's not a nice vision. Why would you burden someone with such a vision? So I sat with this vision for some time, and I have thought about what to do with it. And that brought up another question. <laughs> what What's the point of seeing something that you're not supposed to talk about yet? So anyway, this is leading somewhere. So <laughs> two nights ago at the full moon, mm-hmm. I'll just say it was directly communicated that now's the time for me to talk about it. All right. Right, And whether this makes any difference or not That the city in question is definitely in New York right. And that's all I'll say about that experience Because it will be a long digression And it's kind of besides the point Yeah, But I'm getting the sense that you don't expect
0: Anything's going to happen <laughs> Specifically no, in I, I, New well, York
1: I'd say the opposite, no I do You do? Well all I can say is this The, the experience that I had was that That time is approaching now Mm-hmm. and it's appropriate to speak about it now mm. so people will know about it you know and and immediately after that you were saying what well, well, we can do a podcast this this sunday
0: we we decided to talk about the the 19th the
1: knocking call yes we'd already decided to do that yeah. yeah yes but the implication was now's the time to talk about it mm. and uh most of the day yesterday in the morning i was just uh, extremely sad i just felt uh depressed about it Now, we can write the whole thing off, can't we? As the ramblings of uh, a delusional mystic. Maybe it doesn't mean anything.
0: Well, there are certain occult podcasters, commentators, (laughs) who are well known for making gloomy predictions. This is going to happen. This is
1: going to happen. None of it ever does. I want to say something at this point, Dunk. Mm. Because there's a difference between prediction and prophecy. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> I hope it's really clear to people listening But it's probably that not I <laughs> <laughs> That I am unsure mm. That I'm wrestling with it Yeah, Like it doesn't sit well with me It brings up questions You sound like Jung.
0: What did he? Why, well, what did he say? <laughs> he just didn't want it, did he? Uh, in the Red Book he's always like Complaining about the weight of the stuff That's been shown to him
1: Well actually the best case scenario Is that I just feel bad I've made myself look foolish, I'm obviously delusional, magic makes you insane, <laughs> and and nothing happens. That's the best case scenario, isn't it, actually? Yeah. Yeah, If if, if everything turns out to be correct, that's the worst case scenario. Mm. At least in terms of being a human being in the world.
0: And having things that you have to
1: deal with, yes. But perhaps this leads us to this next part of this call to help us perhaps understand what the point of prophecy is mm. O you heavens arise the lower
0: heavens underneath you, let them serve you. Govern those that govern, cast down such as fall, bring forth with those that increase and destroy the rotten. No place, let it remain in one number, add and diminish until the stars be numbered. Arise, move, and appear before the covenant of his mouth, which he hath sworn unto us in his justice. Open the mysteries of your creation, and make us partakers of
1: undefiled knowledge. So, the call has described the nature of the world. Then God is sorry... For the choices that humans have made and Now we have this third part So in this third part We have something different Don't we It's not merely a description that's being given No There's some instructions in there isn't there For who For
0: those who wish to partake in the Undefiled knowledge Yeah so it
1: becomes An instruction in the sense of it being a call Mm. All you heavens arise, the lower heavens underneath you. So it's worth pointing out that this call begins by addressing the heavens which dwell in the first air. Mm. So in this Enochian cosmology, there's the earth, and it's surrounded by airs or ethers, numbered 30 to 1. One being the highest and the furthest away from earth, the 30th one being the closest. So this call is addressing the heavens which dwell in the first air. So this last bit where it says, Oh, you heavens arise, the lower heavens are underneath you. It's addressing the heavens that are in the first air, or ether. And then it's instructing those heavens in the first air, or ether, that the lower heavens, everything underneath it, should serve that first ether. Mm. In executing the judgment of the highest. And presumably this is possible
0: because things are governed by their parts. We can make this evocation, can't we? We're parts. We can do something.
1: Yes, and the call describes this: the heavens of the first air as being provided by God for the government of the earth and her unspeakable variety, furnishing you with the power to understand all things according to the providence of him that sitteth on the holy throne. Yeah. I mean, there's maybe something to be
0: said here about the traditional, magical, western practice of scrying the ethers. I mean, my understanding is that back in the day, Dee and Kelly would have seen scrying the ethers as a sort of like remote viewing kind of exercise. (laughs) They would have seen it as being able to visit portions of the earth. You know, like you were just saying in the call is this idea that that God has created the thirty ethers,
1: you know, so we can look at all the different things in the world. Well, there was also an element to it which was practical, which was if you found yourself in a certain geographical location on the earth, Mm. there's an appropriate ether with governors to invoke to cause change in that location. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: It is like it's weird, I mean, you know, D was one of the creators of the British Empire. Yeah, And it, it's weird that that sort of mindset seems to um, throw up this, this kind of remote viewing approach to things. Like we saw, you know, uh, the CIA kind of <laughs> looking into, uh, you know, the ability to kind of foster these powers so they can see, you know, different parts of the world. I don't know. I mean, I think Crowley did something different with it, didn't he? He didn't necessarily see the ethers as... Um, parts of the earth but sort of uh, increasingly more subtle realms beyond the earth
1: well that structure is definitely there in the original source material in terms of the 30 ethers you know surrounding the earth like onion layers Mm. and for crowley it was the initiatory aspect of scrying those ethers in terms of their increasing refinement and difficulty of access based on one's appropriate degree of initiation to behold the mysteries of, of the uh, of the ethers in question, so for him it was a question of getting to the first one, and thereby going through a process of um, mystical development, yeah, or initiatory development, something like that.
0: But I think what we can say is, if you undertake this exercise of scrying the thirty ethers, you will have visions, yeah, and they will have lots and lots of things in them, mm. and you'll be called upon to make some sort of sense of that. Um, they might contradict each other. Um They might interact with each other in all sorts of ways,
1: yes, but there's also a startling consistency in the structure underlying the ethers
0: well, in but the I've words s- of yeah, but in the words of the call, uh, these ethers provided you for the government of the earth and her unspeakable variety, furnishing you with the power to understand and dispose all things according to the providence of him that sitteth on the holy throne,
1: yeah, but there's an interesting um Similarity in what can be expected when you scry the ethers. Mm. So, so what mm. I mean is, is like uh, um, ether fourteen <laughs> has certain characteristics to it that I've seen uh, play out for lots of different people scrying the ethers with no prior knowledge of other people's accounts in terms of what they've encountered.
0: Mm. Even though the visions themselves are are
1: going to be very very different, most probably. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The superficial details vary. And a, and a you know particularly appropriate, depending on the scryer. But in terms of the universal structure, there appears to be one that repeats itself. Mm. Now, worth noting in this call is that the very power that led to creation itself, the creation of this world, is the same power that you can call on or invoke. Because the world was created in such a way that the parts govern the whole. <laughs> it's interesting that the power of creation... You know what's led to the world is placed in the hands of the created, yeah, so the human being for whom god is is sorry for the state they find themselves in based on the choices that they've made the the created that's free to make these choices and determine its own fate or destiny, yeah. the very power of creation itself that has led to that world is also placed in their hands, yeah, which is an extraordinary pronouncement, isn't it?
0: It is doubly extraordinary, given that. On the one hand, the way reality is created is such a source of unspeakable suffering, but on the other hand, it's granting this incredible boon, what you've just described, access to that power of creation
1: itself. But here's something interesting. It furnishes you with the power to understand and dispose of all things according to the providence of him that sitteth on the holy throne. So if we described the exercising of this power of creation... By a human being as magic It's in line with the providence Of God Or the divine Right. So the exercising of that power is providential And it's the same power That led to the situation Where we find ourselves In this state of being fallen You know, there's parts governing the whole As you keep referencing Mm. So that's interesting to consider, isn't it? It's providence that's led to the position Where it's possible for us to make these terrible decisions Yeah But it's the same providence that gives us the way out.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And again, parallels with Buddhism. So in Vipassana meditation, we sit, we look at reality as it presents itself. You know, we see that it's impermanent. It's full of suffering. And there's no permanent separate self in it. And we keep looking at that and looking at that and entering into it deeper and deeper and deeper. And then after time, something else comes into view that isn't impermanent, that doesn't Mm. cause suffering, that does have complete consistency in and on itself, an undefiled knowledge. But what's being suggested is is the
1: path that we follow here, Alan. Well, what's being suggested is that we raise our eyes from this fallen, divided world without looking for hope in temporal things, (laughs) right? And we look to God and our inheritance, What's been bestowed upon us by the providence of God. And by calling on that first air, that first ether, you know, going to the highest, mm. that's how we put things the right way up. Right. Because this this call or key is for all the other 30 ethers, isn't it? Yeah. So always we go to the top first. Straight to the top first. And and it's through that which has been given to us, provided to us, and by exercising that as magicians in this case, then it makes something else possible. Yeah. Well, what's happening there is um, the parts are being governed by the highest. So this is an interesting line. Govern those that govern. So what governs this world, the parts that govern this world, they're going to be governed by something else. And that something else is what we find in the first ether or the first air. Bring forth with those that increase and destroy the rotten. So now we have a change, don't we, in the content Of this divided world Bring forth those that increase and destroy the rotten It doesn't say End this world Mm. And in fact what it seems to be describing Is a conscious Participation in this dividing process Because the next line is No place let it remain in one number Add and diminish until the stars be numbered But Mm. the way in which That happens is to bring forth With those that increase and destroy the rotten So that which is rotten falls away but there is a conscious participation in a multiplicity, so it's not saying get rid of this divided world, <laughs> but it is saying something about the the nature or the the condition of this world. in In such a way that that there won't be divine sorrow. Yeah, for the choices humans have made. It's sounding spookily magia-like.
0: Bring forth with those that increase and destroy the rotten sounds a lot like grow what you love and. Uh... Don't fight shadows, and there's also something here, I think, about turning things the other way up. So, you know, the parts govern the whole, but here, what's being talked about is the highest governing the parts. It's being turned the other way around.
1: Yeah, and one being found through the other. Mm. Yeah. So e- everything having its place, but the whole image of creation isn't just this fallen world. There's something else, another world, perhaps this first ether. Mm and then it's that being found here through saying yes to an inheritance and then it being exercised there's something about this add and diminish until the stars be numbered Mm. arise move and appear before the covenant of his mouth which he hath sworn unto us in his justice so again God has sworn to us in his justice in the sense of divine justice things being the right way around that we can summon forth even the highest divine nature to be exercised in the world you know the governors are the inhabitants in the heavens of the first ether we even can command the angels mm. there's a nice contrast isn't there between us being partakers of undefiled knowledge versus that description of the earth confound her understanding with darkness yeah, the way out of the confusion and the darkness and the delusion and the stupidity is magical mm. and
0: you were saying as well it's not to turn away from the nature of reality—it made me think of my experience of scrying the first ether, which was to discover that it was the most mundane of them all. You know, like mm-hmm. when I had the vision, I was walking down down a road with houses on, you know, just a normal street, and I went into somebody's house, and um, there were various characters there that were from the thirtieth ether. So it was almost like kind of coming round in a circle. And I wonder, you know, inevitably maybe when somebody does that working and, you know, scries their way through to the first ether, it's not going to be some sort of extraordinary experience. We might be expecting that, but those expectations, I think, are always going to come into question when you do that work.
1: I think that speaks to the the idea that this world will be destroyed Mm -hmm. or annihilated or swept away, something that you can ignore and you end up in some kind of refined, mystical state. Yeah. Yeah. But instead what we find is something else, which is you're going to find one through the other, which demonstrates a complete image of what creation is. Mm. So it would make sense, wouldn't it, that this call to the first air ether, the most refined, gives us a description of not only the earth, but our place in creation and the role that we can play what our responsibility is mm. So it gives you a complete image Doesn't it of uh, a cosmology yeah. yeah And that's coming from the most Refined heaven, the most refined ether mm. So w- One is found through the other And I think that's, that's something extraordinarily Important to keep in mind and, and it may be helpful for people to Consider this given what's being disclosed In the world at the moment Is that really this is business as usual And how the world yeah. really is and yeah. always has been yeah. Divided against itself. And it's okay for us to see how pitch black it is. That's okay. Because it is a part of creation. But there's some there's more, there's a bigger picture. Yeah. And I do think as well that we all know this deep down. We know that this is the way the world is. So this brings me back round just to talking about that vision. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because that vision is like this call, isn't it? It just implies something horrible. Mm. Something terrible And then you might ask Well what is the point of that The point of it perhaps If we draw parallels with the call Is that this is an expression of divine sorrow This isn't what is wanted for us But what we see In that vision Is something that our actions Have led to Mm. It's something we've decided To pursue And now it's an inevitable conclusion To our actions And it's not an instruction, but it does demonstrate a promise. How would it be possible for someone to be privy to such events? If such an event uh, happens, it can only point to one thing, which is that God or the divine is something that's real. Mm. And it's something that we can participate in and that we have a role in the world and a responsibility. And therefore, when something disastrous does happen, It's important that we don't let ourselves drown in that And maybe that's a big ask But when an event like that happens And you have prior knowledge That this was made in a prophecy Perhaps it will be possible for you to keep your eyes upwards To recognise that there's there's something else that's wanted for us And maybe that keeps us afloat Mm. The problem is, based on the choices that we've made we are not in a season you could say where something better is possible at this time and so it would make sense wouldn't it that this expression of divine sorrow we find it in the bible as you mentioned prior to the events of the deluge yeah if we find ourselves in that place collectively and we do now I think it's undeniable I don't know how anyone could think otherwise what we're left with is an expression of divine sorrow it's not wanted for us and there's still a Promise to each individual person an inheritance, but collectively, other things aren't possible at this time. End there? Is it too gloomy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? Should we end there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Shall I stop recording? Yeah. Yeah.